Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Trauma Forum in Athens. Managing bleeding in a patient with severe trauma is a complex process with multiple interventions occurring in parallel. Derek Kleinveld is an intensivist and researcher from the Department of Intensive Care Medicine at the University Medical Centre in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and he joins me to discuss hemostatic resuscitation in trauma. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Todd. Um, uh, I'm happy to be invited to talk on trauma-induced coagulopathy. Derek, what is meant by that term, trauma-induced coagulopathy? So uh, essentially with coagulopathy, uh the definition is a hemostatic imbalance uh, in in patients and what is meant with trauma induced coagulopathy usually they um they think of it as being a clotting disorder that is present in severely injured and shocked patients and then TIC is broadly divided in an endogenous part in which um uh, the trauma and tissue injury um causes that coagulopathy and there's an uh, ex, uh, exogenous part, which is the resuscitation-induced uh, um, coagulopathy. Derek, what are the uh, mechanisms that are inducing TIC in patients? So th- those mechanisms are not uh, fully known yet. Um, and you can imagine that um, trauma is a quite uh, um, heterogeneous um, uh, disease. So um, we, we are not sure yet, but of course, the amount of shock and tissue injury, they uh, contribute to that uh, coagulopathy. And TIC is actually, um, yeah, what, what we know from observational trials is that uh, there is a prolonged clotting time and we have platelet dysfunction and hyperfibrinolysis, but yeah, we are not really sure what is actually causing that. Uh, we can, yeah, we can guess and we come to elevated tissue factor um, concentrations and uh, elevated uh, tissue plasminogen activators. Um, but we are, we are not sure yet. Um, we hear a lot about the endothelium and its role in all of this. And the term endotheliopathy is sometimes used to describe that. What's that and what are, what are we talking about in this instance? So uh, endotheliopathy is usually referred to as the dysfunction of the endo, uh, endothelium. Um, and we, we see also from observational trials that the amount of silicon one um, and trauma modeling, which are components of the glycocalyx, and the glycocalyx is actually the inner layer of your endothelium. It's sort of a sugar layer that um, prevents spontaneous coagulation. But we see uh, components of of that uh, glycocalyx uh, that are being shed in the circulation. And those are associated with uh, with mortality and multiple organ failure. but then again, if if you look at associations, we don't know anything about causality. So uh, we we see that um, that those factors are increased, but we are not sure if there's a causal relationship with TIC. What are the hypotheses around that? If we're not sure, but what do you suspect is causing that endotheliopathy? And that, is there anything that we can do about it when we're managing patients? 
Um, so here we come to very experimental data, but um, yeah, there are some uh, some people that are suggesting that the amount of crystalloids you infuse contribute to um, the increased release of um, of those syndicates or the glycocalyx, and you can sort of um, imagine that if you if you were to uh, infuse a lot of um, crystalloids, then maybe you are dissolving part parts of that sugar layer. So maybe it's better in those instances to um, transfuse with plasma or protein-rich fluids. But still, this is very experimental and, and not yet proven in, in trauma patients. Is there any way of measuring that endotheliopathy, whether that be experimental or clinical? Um, yeah, you could evaluate the microvasculature, um, so by uh, microscopy or... Um, yeah, that's that's uh, done in in animals in uh, experimental studies. Um, also, you could say something about the thickness of the glycocalyx, but th these are very hard measures and um, yeah, not really suitable for for clinics yet. So, um, are any elements of the glycocalyx itself measurable in the in the plasma? Yeah, so so we are measuring uh, silicon one in in trauma patients and uh, trauma modeling, um, which is actually a, a receptor on the um, uh, on the endothelium rather than part of the glycocalyx. But uh, silicon one is uh, is usually measured, um, so soluble silicon one. Then of course, yeah. Derek, what do we know about how the uh, the pattern of TIC? Uh, changes over the course of a patient's admission. Yeah, here we come again to, to that trauma is a very uh, heterogeneous uh, disease. Uh, so we see all types of uh, coagulation abnormalities presenting to the um, emergency department. And those range from those bleeding phenotypes with uh, platelet dysfunction and hyperfibrinolysis, but we also see hypercoagulability there. Um, I like to think that if a patient is actively bleeding, um, that there's more of a hypocoagulable state. And when the patient has stopped bleeding, there may be a transition towards uh, hypercoagulability. But yeah, uh, this is just my thought and not, uh, not really um, yeah, supported by the evidence because many Many of the observational trials actually show that also the hypofibrinolytic response and the hypercoagulability is actually associated with um, mortality and um, unfavorable outcomes. Um, yeah, so we are not sure, but I think there there should be some kind of progression. And this progression can happen within minutes after injury, when the bleeding stopped, I guess, or within hours or days after injury. Derek, when we're talking about TIC in a patient who presents with a severe trauma, um, are there ways of measuring their coagulopathy? What what are the we've obviously got the traditional measures of um, coagulation, but there's also thromboelastography. What do they usually look like when they present to the emergency department or trauma bay? Um, so yeah, uh, usually. 
TIC was defined as an INR of 1.2 or higher or protrombin ratio, which is actually the same. Um, so protrombin ratio of uh, 1.2 or higher. Uh, we see in the conventional coagulation assays actually that the fibrinogen is a little bit lower um, when they present to the uh, emergency de department. And also, yeah, platelets, they tend to be normal, uh, but their dysfunction is uh, usually captured in um, yeah, adhesion measures or um, aggregation measures. And your point on uh, viscoelastic testing, um, they usually present with um, a prolonged clotting time and then uh, a diminished amplitude in their um, in their clotting capabilities. Derek, what do we know about the outcomes for these patients? So if you turn up with a uh, trauma-induced coagulopathy, does that put you at any risks compared with other patients? Yeah, so um, here we... We also obtained the data from observational trials that showed that if you have that coagulopathy, you're sort of twice as likely to die from, from your injury than without that coagulopathy. So, um, yeah, it has a an, uh, an tremendous effect on, uh, on your mortality. Derek, I'd like to turn to how we manage these patients for a moment. In one of the talks that you gave in Athens, you talked about the concept of permissive hypotension, sorry, hypotension. What does that term mean for those who aren't necessarily aware of it and how is it practiced in practice? So permissive hypotension is actually a term that um, um, is very variable. I guess so. You so we think of um, uh, not of um, targeting a specific mean arterial pressure, but targeting perfusion. So if you have a patient with a mean arterial pressure of fifty-five, for example, and he or she is still talking to you, um, then perhaps the perfusion is adequate for that patient, um, and you should not infuse a lot of crystalloids to increase that mean arterial pressure. Um, but then again, if you have brain injury, perhaps um, the mean arterial pressure should be uh, 75, for example, um, to overcome that uh, intracranial pressure. Um, so uh, it's sort of a um, variable concept in which you target perfusion over uh, pressure. Uh, and with as goal to um, to not dilute your coagulation factors. Derek, we um, have heard a lot about um, the endothelium and how crystalloids can impact on the endothelium. Um, it seems that resuscitation in patients who are aggressively bleeding is changing all the time. Is there a best approach in terms of how we should manage the patient's um, factor needs, et cetera? Um, so in my opinion, you should, um, if the patient is actively bleeding, you should uh, give tranexamic acid um, based on the crash trials. Um, you're you're, you should transfuse those patients, so limit the amount of crystalloids, and transfuse with a sort of balanced uh, transfusion uh, strategy. Uh, whether that 
based on components or whole blood is uh, not yet known. Um, but mimic the um, the losses of that patient, essentially. Um, so the proper trial, for example, which evaluated the ratios of blood products um, was actually a negative trial, but we tend to um, say that it is a positive trial. So um, uh, all the transfusion strategies, especially in Europe, they... Um, uh, they are sort of based on that one-to-one-to-one red cells to plasma to platelet ratio. Um, but uh, perhaps we are not sure. At least give a, uh, give plasma and platelets to, that, to those patients. Um, then there is a lot of evidence um, uh, generated on the pre-hospital use of plasma. Um, yeah, here we actually don't know what we have to do because the PEMPER, which was the pre-hospital trial on the emergency ambulance, actually showed a, a staggering 10% absolute mortality um, difference for the patient that received pre-hospital plasma. But then again, you have the COMBAT trial, which is a similar trial and a refill trial that did not show uh, that mortality difference. So... We are not sure on pre-hospital plasma. Um, and what is most important, with which I have not talked about, but is early bleeding control. Uh, so um, besides all those, uh, all those strategies, if you have not uh, get adequate uh, bleeding control, then, then you're just uh, giving fluids to yeah, an actively bleeding patients and yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense, in, in my opinion. The other things that are suggested as part of this early approach is the use of other factor products such as uh, freeze-dried fibrinogen and uh, prothrombin uh, complex concentrates. Are they Where do you see those currently in our understanding? So we know that if uh, you have a low fibrinogen level, your outcomes are worse. Uh, so that's where the fibrinogen comes from. Um, then you have actually broadly two products that you can give. You can give fibrinogen concentrates or uh, cryoprecipitates. Um, and we have little evidence of uh, both of those products. We know that the UK trial Cryostat 2 uh, will come, um, so the result become public um, I think early or or somewhere in 2023, uh, the, the trial has come has been completed. Uh, um, but I I guess that um, most people tend to think, okay, well, if the fibrinogen is lower than 1.5, you should administer fibrinogen, and it doesn't really matter if you give cryoprecipitate or fibrinogen concentrate, but you have to. Um, to give that to promote coagulation. For PCCs, there are some systematic reviews, but if you dig, if you go into them, then those are based on observational trials. Um, and yeah, with observational trials, you can also always think, well, maybe there is some sort of survival uh, bias or um, there are a lot of uh, yeah factors that can contribute that to 
um, BCC being favorable over FFPs or um, um, so for PCCs, I don't have a definitive answer, but uh, I guess that if your co coagulation factors are really diminished, then you should give some PCCs. But then again, you you should should think of that you also give protein C and protein S in some concentrates, and um, you are not giving factor five, for example. Um, so that's um, yeah. We are not sure on PCCs. Many units and departments have made the move to uh, vesicoelastic testing as a guide for their uh, trauma management. What is the evidence saying about the use of this sort of diagnostic tests in trauma? Uh, so there are, uh, to my knowledge, two trials. You have the trials for, uh, from the US um, by Gonzalez. Um, they showed a mortality benefit when um, uh, tech was compared to uh, conventional assays for actually guiding their transfusion. And then you have the itactic trial, um, which was a, a randomized controlled trial in um, six European level one trauma centers, uh, where they gave a standardized approach of uh, resuscitation, so that balanced transfusion strategies and tranexamic acid. And then um, they augmented their uh, transfusion strategies by either conventional test or viscoelastic testing. Uh, and they did not show a benefit um, in um, uh, days alive and uh, free of massive transfusion or free, yeah. So, um, um, it was a negative trial, but there was some signal in the patients that um, were presented with TIC or with TBI. But we are not yet sure if, if there's really a benefit for those patients. Finally, Derek, where do you think that the future of resuscitation research needs to be, particularly in terms of bleeding trauma patients? So in my opinion, uh, we should first um, get more mechanistic insight in what TIC actually is. Uh, so do a lot of uh, experimental studies on um, uh, on the progression of TIC and, and uh, on that platelet dysfunction and uh, how those coagulation factors actually uh, work within TIC. We know that from the basic coagulation cascade, of course, but... In TIC, it might be slightly different. Um, and um, then only, yeah, and then and then go to randomized trials for, for those uh, things we are not sure about. So uh, for fibrinogen, uh, for the PCCs, for perhaps factor five, um, and perhaps and 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 collaborate uh, with each other to to run these uh, large randomized trials, such as uh, the crash trials, which are uh, really uh, large trials, and they yeah they they actually change our um, treatment strategies. So that would be my uh, best solution for um, for TIC, I guess. Derek, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insights into trauma-induced coagulopathy and the hemostatic uh, resuscitation. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for inviting me again. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. 
All of Osler's content and features are completely free. Get access to all of our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, articles and videos by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.